0: Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, we'd love it if you spread the word about Here and Now Anytime and told someone else to listen. Now here's the show. These shootings were orchestrated. They were dangerous attacks, not only to these individuals, which is personally the most terrifying for them, but fundamentally also to democracy. A failed state house candidate is arrested in connection with a string of attacks on lawmakers' homes. It's Tuesday, January 17th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime, from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, funding a promise to guarantee early childhood education, and reflections from a career reporting in L.A. But first... That was Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller we heard a moment ago, talking about a series of what he called politically motivated shootings at the homes of some Democratic officials. Yesterday, police arrested a man they claim is the mastermind behind at least four attacks since the November election, Solomon Pena, a Republican who lost his race for state legislature. There were no injuries reported in these shootings, just property damage. But Pena had been claiming fraud in the election that he lost. Those claims echo others from Republicans like former President Trump, and they raise the specter of political violence elsewhere. Bryce Dix has the latest from Albuquerque. He's with member station KUNM, and he spoke to Scott Tong. So the mayor said these shootings
1: were orchestrated, and yesterday he accused Solomon Pena of being involved in all this. Who were the targets of the shootings, and do we know why they were targeted? Yeah, well, uh, this whole situation really started off when rounds were fired first at the home of Brinleo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa. She was the first victim uh, that happened in uh, December of last year. Uh, days from that, uh, another state representative, um, Javier Martinez's home was targeted. Um, and later from that, another shooting happened at the home of Brinleo County Commissioner Debbie O'Malley. Uh, More than a dozen rounds were fired at her home, according to a police report. Um, And we have one more victim, too. Her name is Senator Linda Lopez, and Mm. her home, who was shot at. Um, She was shot at in the early hours of January 3rd, earlier this month. Um, And she actually told our station that she found a bullet hole above her bed and three more in her daughter's room, which mm. had sheetrock and dust fall on her face from the bullet impacts. So mm. she, uh, she told us that she was just downright angry, shocked, and, and glad that no one was injured, as you said, yeah. by these drive-bys. And as far as authorities, uh, what did they say is the link to Peña, Solomon Peña? Well, as you as you mentioned, the suspect is Solomon Pena. Uh, he's a former New Mexico state legislative candidate for a district here in Albuquerque. Um, he ran back in November's election. He lost that race by about 3,600 or so votes. Uh, since then, he's been going around claiming the election was rigged here in the state and went even as far as to show up at some of the victims' homes, claiming he had documents proving this. Um, But who knows the true validity of those claims? Um, Who knows? But uh, this morning, he's been booked in jail in connection with these shootings um, because of uh, as of a couple minutes ago, apparently there was a confidential informant that was key to the investigation in identifying Pena as one of the uh, suspects. Yeah. And of course, the question so many of us are are asking is, what does this mean for our electoral system if a loser can allegedly resort to, to this violence. Is that conversation happening in Albuquerque? Well, th- this conversation actually has been going on a while. Um, this shows just a concerning rise of violence within and relating to our elections here in the U.S. Um, actually, disturbingly enough, I broke a story during seri- the very same election Pina lost that our Secretary of State's office was uh conducting the election off-site for the very first time in new mexico's history mm. so this could just be another page in the rising extremism we're seeing okay. in our political parties mm-hmm. that is kunm's bryce dix joining us from albuquerque bryce thank you awesome thank you so
0: much for having me coming up legislative business in new mexico continues despite the shootings Last year, New Mexico became the first state to guarantee a right to early childhood education. And one of the first items of business in the new legislative session is implementing that law. After the break, Deepa Fernandez speaks with one of the women in charge of seeing that through.
2: in new mexico have a welcome challenge on the opening day of the legislative session they're starting out flush with cash with a purse of about 12 billion dollars including some new money from oil and gas revenue the question is how they will divvy it up We know some of that money will go to efforts to support the state's youngest children and the people who care for them. That's because voters approved a constitutional amendment in November to direct more than $150 million every year into early childhood education. Elizabeth Gruginski is Cabinet Secretary for Early Childhood Education and Care in New Mexico. She joins us now to talk about the priorities for the months ahead. Secretary Gruginski, welcome. Thank you, Deepa. It's great to be here. Yes, and I think it might be a surprise for some to hear that there's a state level cabinet position devoted entirely to the needs of children under five years old. New Mexico actually became the fourth state to officially roll out this new department, and that was back in 2020, the early days of the pandemic. Tell us why.
3: Yes. Um, In New Mexico, for about 10 years, legislators were looking at, you know, how are we going to improve outcomes for children and families? And so they had brought legislation and it was with Governor Lujan Grisham's uh, leadership. And I think it was because of the outcomes in New Mexico, you know, 50th in child well-being, 50th in child hunger. We knew that more needed to be done in a cohesive and equitable and effective way.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and really, the state's done so much in just a short period of time. You know, here on our coverage of early childhood on Here and Now, we often hear from experts in the field that New Mexico is the state to watch in terms of policy for early childhood. You've already invested in increasing wages for the child care workforce, providing daycare assistance to families. But a lot of that help has been funded by temporary COVID relief money So in a way, you've already charted a roadmap for lawmakers as they decide which programs to dedicate money to from this new amendment that just passed. Can you provide perhaps one specific example about how you hope the money is prioritised?
3: Yes, we want to see the money to continue to be prioritised to expand access to quality Early Care and Education Services, so that's continuing to maintain our focus on expanded child care eligibility, where right now most New Mexico families are receiving free child care, and continuing to expand our pre-K program for both threes and four-year-olds.
2: Okay. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, quality child care, I think
3: it takes a lot. What is the state doing to help improve the quality of child care? So we know that in order for us to have quality for our children, we need a diverse and a well compensated and credentialed workforce. So just recently, the governor had us um, release the competitive pay for professionals. We gave everybody working in childcare a $3 an hour raise because we wanted to send the message the work they do is respected um, and we need to make the wages that they earn reflect the value of the work they're doing with our children, with our families, and in our communities.
2: Yeah. And just in case folks don't know, the wages that that early childcare education workers make has been compared to minimum wage in, in many places. So a $3 mm-hmm. increase, I imagine, is a lot. I, I want to share a question with you that we got from Tara Hughes, who's a special education nice. early childhood teacher and the 2023 New Mexico State Teacher of the Year. Let's listen to her question. High educator turnover is a major problem in the education sector. I know New Mexico has been working towards recruiting and retaining educators, but what is the Early Child Education Care Department specifically doing to develop a workforce that matches its high-quality standards? Secretary Griginski, could you
3: respond to that? Uh, For Tara, it's definitely making sure that the pay is at the level that reflects, um, again, that value of what they're bringing back to our families and our communities, but also supports We were the first state in the nation to set our childcare reimbursement rates based on what it actually costs to provide care. And that was significant because our childcare programs were running on revenues that would not allow them to break even without paying low wages. So it's about paying our teachers but continuing to support their professional development so that it's a, a positive work environment and a positive place for them to come and educate and care for our children.
2: Hmm. You recently finished a month's long listening tour around the state. Can you tell us what you've been hearing from either parents or daycare providers or, or, or local leaders about the support that they need going forward?
3: You know, just an example um, of a parent, of a single dad, you know, who I got to hear from, who was talking about just his biggest fear is he how is he going to afford child care? He has to work long hours. He wants to make sure that his daughter has the best care. She's one years old. Uh, When the governor made child care, expanded it to 400%, it was such a relief of the financial burden. From child care operators, we've heard when we did the competitive pay for professionals, they said, I finally have filled my final spots, uh, my final staffing, and I've been able to open another classroom. These are the kind of investments that are making real transformative change in families' lives, in educators' lives, and in the child care industry itself.
2: You know, I want to ask you, because other states don't necessarily have the windfall that New Mexico does to devote to some of these concerns, I'm wondering what you think they can learn from how you and your colleagues in New Mexico are tackling early childhood issues.
3: I think one thing I want to really give credit to are advocates on the ground, families, early childhood educators who were out there knocking doors and making sure that the general public was aware of the importance of early childhood, but it, it did take a decade. Um, I think the vote of 70% of New Mexico voters saying yes to funding early childhood is speaks to the volume of those 10 years of work. So, you know, take the long road, uh, keep your eye on that prize, which means we need significant investments to fully fund our prenatal to five system in this country uh, it's going to take everything. It's going to take the so put people the on the work. ground getting families involved, getting teachers and educators and everybody talking about it, but making the financial plan for their future.
2: Elizabeth Griginsky is Cabinet Secretary for Early Childhood Education and Care in New Mexico. Secretary Griginsky, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: New Mexico's not the only state kicking off its legislative session with lots on the to-do list. Head to hereandnow.org for more on what's going on in Alaska.
3: This is going to be a tough budget year for the state. Alaska's budget is closely tied to the price of oil, which has been steadily dropping. And there are some big-ticket priorities, a badly-needed increase to education funding, a redesign to the state pension plan. There's the perennial question of a permanent fund dividend, which is a check that Alaskans receive out of the state's oil wealth and deciding how much money the state can afford to put into that.
0: Coming up, Deepa's exit interview with a beloved local broadcaster in LA who just retired after 30 years covering Southern California. That's after the
3: break. A
2: queen of local news in Los Angeles retired last month. Beverly White has been a local reporter in Los Angeles for just over three decades. In addition to her own reporting, she's renowned as a great mentor and model for those entering journalism. She received a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2018 from the National Association of Black Journalists for her years of work. And she joins us now to talk about her
4: career and the role of local news. Beverly, welcome to Here and Now. Thank you, Deepa, for the acknowledgement And um, the recognition of my retirement, it it feels good.
2: Let's start at the (laughs) very beginning. I'd love to know about little Beverly White and why she chose TV journalism. Because, I mean, we all know, Beverly, that there were pitifully few African-Americans on TV news. What made you think, I can be a TV reporter?
4: Well, it didn't happen when I was little Beverly White, that's for sure. I had my revelation at university. I attended UT in Austin, but I think the seeds were planted by my family. My parents did not go to college, but they're very literate and kept magazines around the house all the time and newspapers. Plus, the TV was always on mostly newscasts when they were available. You know, it was pre 24 hour news cycle when I was a kid, but we would line up as a family to watch Walter Cronkite and others. My parents felt current events were uh, bread and butter, that we all had to stay on top of issues, Um, not just civil rights, but the world at large. And because my father was a soldier, my mother worked in public schools as a cafeteria lady. They were big believers in knowing what was going on around us.
2: Let's jump to you coming to Los Angeles as a reporter in 1992. Now, this was just after the Rodney King uprising. What was it like for you at that point in the local news scene?
4: Well, the news space was somewhat lonely for me, but I dove in quickly as a general assignments reporter that's what we do. I think a day or two of orientation and then off to the races and realizing quickly that there were not a lot of African Americans on TV in local news in LA at the time. They'd gone for 7 years without a black woman on television at the station that hired me, KNBc. So, I feel like I, I jumped into a void and was promptly put to work, which I appreciated coming from Miami, with all the same issues I found upon arrival in L.A. Race, culture, drugs, crime, weather. It's all here. And I've been fulfilled beyond my wildest dreams, chasing stories in the mm. city of angels, where sometimes the devils also present themselves.
2: And maybe let's talk about that a little bit, because I feel like, especially, say, when we think about the Rodney King uprising, jump all the way forward to 2020 and the racial justice uprisings, there are certain media tropes or stereotypes about Black people rising up or protesting. And I wonder how you felt sent out to cover some of these things. It was
4: overwhelming, because the protests had value and merit in these voices, wanted to be heard. Some were loud, some were subtle, but everybody upon arrival would see a TV crew like me and my photographer, for instance, and present themselves right away. Like, I've got a story to tell. You look like me, help me put it out there. My sister, I would get that a lot. And the embrace from the African-American community and later the community at large, I think really informed my exploration of Southern California. But you're right, post-Rodney King, I think, inspired the bosses to bring me on board. They told me during the interview process, if we don't have a lot of black folks in the streets, maybe we can break through and do better, deeper journalism if we hire more folks who look like you and are willing to help us, help LA get to know herself better.
2: Hmm, a really pioneering moment. You know, Los Angeles um, has its sunny, glittery, glamorous Hollywood side. But then there's also the dose of reality, the gritty streets, the LA noir, the family struggling just to make ends meet in very poorly resourced parts of town. You chose the night shift for your entire career in Los Angeles. Why?
4: I've always believed that the better stories tend to happen after sundown. It's true, you do get crime and crazy folks. And uh, you mentioned noir, which really is a thing in Southern California. But I also find, you know, fewer bosses, more newscasts, and in my humble opinion, the potential for deeper, better stories.
2: And some of those voices, Beverly, that you prioritized, and these are folks whose voices we don't really hear often even now. Why did you really go after just the regular folks and make them be the expert on whatever you were talking to them about?
4: I consider it a great blessing and a calling, providing a platform for, like you described, the voices that aren't often heard. And these voices resonate with me because I'm not from a college-educated background. I have a degree, but I'm the first in my family to do so. My, again, my dad was a soldier. My mother worked in the cafeterias at the public schools. So diversity is not just race and gender, it's also class and station. And I think I bring a different voice, not the only one, of the working class.
2: And you're, you're known by most Angelinos, which is so remarkable. <laughs> you know, I just want to ask you very quickly, though, you in your years, your three decades of reporting must have seen the role of women change in TV news. Tell me about that.
4: Oh, absolutely. I was hired by a female news director, a wonderful woman. So I hope I've inspired a few as she inspired me. But I've also had opportunities that weren't available to other women in previous generations. It's been told to me by my former coworkers in Miami, for instance, I went to cover a vigil. And after the community responded to the vigil, it was for a drug dealer and he was beloved. And during the observance for um, his killing at the hands of police, it evolved into a riot, Uh, not a civil disturbance, just a straight up riot, a spontaneous act of violence across several city blocks. And when I returned to the newsroom, The women with whom I was working met me with a round of applause, and I couldn't understand why. They said, no, you're the first one we've had in this newsroom cover a disturbance like that, a straight-up riot, from start to finish, because it evolved around me. Typically, women were not assigned to those stories, and this really wasn't that long ago. We're talking maybe 1990. That was one of those scenarios where the ladies in the newsroom made it clear upon my return. They hadn't been allowed to do that. And once I did, it was a breakthrough for everybody in recent days. I noticed just a a good look around, I think, as I was leaving the newsroom. All the women, the females in executive positions, running things, making important decisions. I'm delighted to be a witness to the change.
2: I want to get you to look forward for us because, you know, you've been in local news for so many years and we've seen both print and broadcast shrinking in recent years. What do you see as the future of of news journalism?
4: Oh my, that is an ambitious question. I'll take a, a humble stab at it by saying I have great hope. Of course, the delivery systems are changing. But as long as we have not only dedicated journalists who have the training, the 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 chops, the experience, research, writing, and just staying up on events and not being afraid of our communities that we cover, I I think that's a tremendous start. I think TV news and print journalism will always have a place, and I'm proud to have been a part of it for as long as it lasted for me, a total of 41 years to be exact.
2: So Los Angeles is sprawling in many ways its citizens don't have a shared identity you know the five county region is as big as some countries i wonder if you can tell us how you thought about covering the region when you're in a place where many people on one side of the freeway are unfamiliar with the communities just on the other side how did you bridge that gap
4: well every day is different i'd be lying if i say we achieved that lofty goal on a consistent basis but the effort was always there i my willingness to introduce my community to other parts of the community came through in my coverage. I tried to make every single story as diverse as possible and voices, input on camera, obviously, from people you might not see otherwise. I'd make the extra step to try and include people who look like me and look like folks who aren't often on television because it's not just trauma and tragedy. We've, got, we've all got opinions about inflation and the economy and climate change. Given a chance, I try to get those voices in my stories all the time. And I think that gave me a passport to the five counties you mentioned.
2: And that is great advice for all of us who do this on a daily basis to stay focused on as, as we keep making news. Beverly, good luck in your retirement. I hope you enjoy your time off. <laughs> We've been talking with Beverly White, longtime NBC news reporter in Los Angeles who's just retired. Thank you, Beverly.
4: Thank you, Deepa. Stay
2: safe.
0: This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. There's always more to explore at hereandnow.org. We've got an update on tornado recovery in Selma, Alabama, and a conversation with an artist who went undercover as an arms dealer to get a glimpse of the surreal world inside weapons conventions. One of the things that fascinated her the swag at those arms conventions
2: stress balls in the shape of bombs, grenades, tanks, soldiers. I have stress balls that are like a soldier head. Sweets with slogans. I've got sweets with the slogan, Welcome to Hell, given away by the company Beauforts. And condoms, free condoms that are given out with the slogan, The
0: Ultimate Protection. You can find that and a lot more at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Thomas Daniellian, Ashley Locke, and Shirley Jihad. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.